economist Richard Salzman. We will also save time at the end to take some audience questions. So throughout the discussion, please type your questions into the Zoom Q&A or the Zoom chat. Or if you're watching us live on any of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or YouTube, you can also type your questions into the comment stream. Today's first topic will be the political and grassroots response to the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And then we're gonna move on to economics and discuss inflation. So first, the political as well as the grassroots responses to critical race theory. Across the country, legislatures and governors are banning the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And I'm just wondering, is this the right move? Are the responses the correct responses? Stephen, why don't you start? Yeah, I wanted to jump in initially with just two quick, hopefully, points about the morality of the discussion uh, uh, behind the scenes with respect to the, to, to the politics. So uh, we're having a big national and increasingly international discussion about race issues, all of the history, the psychology, the morality, the politics, and so on. And the, uh, the elephant in the room is uh, critical race theory, which we talked about last time, defining it and so on. So it's a, an intellectual and now uh, activist movement with a certain understanding about what race is and how it should be fought and so on. And uh, I wanted to say two things about the, the, the morality of this movement. One is point is that you, uh, and by this I mean pretty much all Americans are not racists and that uh, critical race theory, despite its advertising itself, uh, is not in fact an anti-racist movement. So the first thing on uh, uh, you are not a racist. Now, obviously, uh, you know, the United States, for example, is 330 something million people. We do have some racists kicking around, but they are a relatively small minority. Advocates of critical race theory are relatively aware that we live in a very tolerant, progressive society when it comes to racial issues. Uh, but they are nonetheless disingenuously using race, you know, attacks on racism uh, rather promiscuously as a rhetorical tactic to put people on the defensive and people who are put on the defensive are, are much more easily uh, uh, manipulated. So uh, I want that not just to be a, you know, an assertion here, but we have very good data. So I'm going to share screen now. And this is from 19, or sorry, 2013. Is this showing now? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So this is published in the Washington Post, but it's a summary of some very good social science data, uh, uh, basically polling people around the world about their attitudes toward different races and working with people and living in neighborhoods with people of different races and so on. And the important point about this is that this was widely published and, and uh, disseminated before 2015 or so, which is when there was a cultural sea change with respect to critical race theory uh, and, and certain kinds of wokeism and social justice warrior attitudes and so on. And so what this, uh, this data shows, and I, uh, I can uh, scale it up a little bit, this image, this is basically uh, people's response around the world to, you know, are you comfortable with living in your neighborhood, uh, people from other racial groups? And basically what you find in is uh, most of the enlightenment affected parts of the world, and that includes almost all of North America. Vast majority of people have no problem whatsoever with it. And then when you start looking at other issues of uh, racial attitudes uh, and tolerance and acceptance and intermarriage and so on, we live in an extraordinarily progressive culture on, on this issue. So first point then is going to be not letting 
the critical race theorists with their rather promiscuous accusations of everybody is a racist. And if you don't do exactly what we tell you, we're going to continue to uh, infil, uh, inflict guilt and shame on you. That it's, it's completely unfounded and it's a, it's a moral injustice, uh, uh, right? And so on. The other thing is, I want to, to, to make a point that critical race theorists are not themselves anti-racist. Now, this it might sound a little bit provocative, but the analogy that I wanted to, to make is uh, uh, to, uh, to people who are uh, against religious persecution or people who are against slavery. We find the exact same dynamic played out historically here. You know, it's one thing, I mean, suppose you are a member of a persecuted minority religiously, uh, as has happened uh, throughout much, much of history, you will protest about religious persecution and you will not yourself enjoy being persecuted for your religious views. But if you are a person who, when you are in a position of cultural or political power, will yourself just turn the tables and start persecuting people of other religions, then you are not in fact in favor of religious toleration or opposed to political or sort of religious uh, persecution. You just don't like being on the receiving end of it. The same thing with respect to anti-slavery. Obviously, there have been huge millions of numbers of people throughout history who have been slaves. They did not like being slaves. They protested being slaves and so forth. But when their group came into political power, they had no problem themselves with owning slaves and taking slaves of, uh, of, of other groups and, and so forth. So uh, they are not, in fact, anti-slavery on principle, just as many people in history were not anti-religious persecution on principle. So what we find with critical race theorists is they have no problem whatsoever with targeting other racial groups, any group that they don't like. Uh, 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 and typically, it's uh, somewhat cultural specific. So if Caucasians, for example, or white people are, are a racial majority, say in North America, you will find lots and lots of racist attitudes and racist uh, uh, speech and policies directed against white people. And the argument is, well, we're just being anti-racist because whites were racist, some of them in the past and so forth. But it's the exact same thing as, uh, as people in the past who didn't want religious persecution, but themselves would engage in it. So critical race theorists, to the extent that they are, and this is the vast majority of them, willing to be anti-white on principle, anti-Caucasian or anti-Asian, and to turn a blind eye to other forms of racism targeted against uh, groups that they don't happen to be a member of, that means that they are not, in fact, anti-racist on principle. They are just not themselves wanting to be the targets of certain kinds of racial attitudes. So uh, uh, both of those, I think, are moral points that we need to put them more on the defensive for their racism and not accept any unearned guilt with respect to, uh, uh, to, to racism. Okay, so I'm going to pause there for now. Those were meant to be just a couple of quick introductory points. A couple of points I want to add to that, uh, Stephen. The uh, the resistance to believe that there's such a thing as color blindness, uh, or the even something as deep as objectivity or the use of logic, which is very common in CRT movement, uh, to me is 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 another indication that the attempt is not really to rid the country of racism but to accentuate its minor elements. And I agree it is a minor element. I, I wanna say something provocative before I say something about the pushback. This would be somewhat provocative, I, I, but also optimistic. I believe that this push, since it's been in academia since the mid eighties, it's not new in that regard. What's new is that it's spilling out into 
uh, more visible institutions like uh, public schools and the military and C-suites and corporations and things like that. Um, I believe it reflects precisely the progress. The progress in America especially has been stupendous in terms of having a society that's less and less racist. And in terms of what's called systemic, institutional, structural racism, uh, even more so. There is just none uh, that can be discerned in any institutional, I mean, in terms of the laws and things like that, even in policing, um, they, it used to be systematic. The Jim Crow laws were literally systematically racist or segregation in the schools. So that has not been true in America for at least 50 years. And I would characterize the last 50 years as not only not having that kind of institutional legal a structural uh, racism, but also the individual racist, if you will, or the individual racist groups also in significant, significant decline. Now, this is somewhat going to the motives of the CRT people, and I don't want to write just go there, but uh, if you lived your life with writing on the research, you know, building up your human capital and your, your resume in academia on this kind of stuff, and then you saw it dwindling, you saw it going away, that could be bothersome to some people and they would want to keep the flame going, so to speak, and literally keep the house burning when it really isn't burning at all. So um, hmm. if you look at it that way, you could say, you know, this is actually an indication of how wonderfully America has um, solved this problem, starting, starting with the Civil War, the most physicalist aspect of it. And then uh, the Jim Crow laws and the, and the changes in the, 18, in the 1960s call that the more legal remedies. And now we're just into psychology. Now we're just into crazy people who are always going to be racist, but aren't really a, a part of the American uh, ideal system, I would say. Now, a, a couple words on really my segment of this, which is pushback. Another encouraging thing, pushback. I mean, there was the beginnings of pushback, and I think it requires exactly what Professor Hicks said, namely, don't fall for the guilt, don't fall for the guilt trip. If you're not guilty of any of this, you shouldn't be apologizing for any of this, nor should you be silent about it. You should be de defending your beliefs and defending your America, which is not racist. But these, so these attempts, I think, at the school board meetings, you see, if you just, if you just go to YouTube and ask for, you know, angry mobs, moms, not mobs, angry moms criticizing school boards, uh, moms, mo mostly moms, not dads, but some dads, some students, some teachers, um, it, addressing school boards and telling them that CRT is terrible, telling them that CRT is nasty, telling them that CRT is instilling in children and adolescents the idea that you're either an oppressor or the oppressed and neither is neutral. And, and so I think that's very encouraging. On the other hand, when I think of school board, I think of like a commissariat, the problem is these are government schools. And I'm not saying this kind of stuff doesn't go on in private schools, but there is a limit to how much that can be done complaining to a school board. I think we have to start thinking about fundamentally privatizing and defunding, if you will, not the police, but the public schools. And if this has to be done through more homeschooling or through more private schools, I don't think these school boards, when you think about how wedded they are to this ideology are really gonna be all that friendly. Um, these things are filmed, which is one thing, but they're not gonna be all that friendly to changing and they can work away from and around the parents 
uh, very easily. And it's hard. It's hard to be a full-time activist and keep your eye on the school board, let alone joining the school board. Again, you can join a school board if you're one of 12, you're going to be outvoted. Now, there are laws like in Florida and elsewhere that are being passed that simply try to ban this. But I think of it as no different than the debates we used to have over whether to teach evolution or creationism in the school. Understand that the reason there are these conflicts to begin with is that there is this monopoly on educating your child. Now, if there's going to be, then there's going to be a fight over what the monopolist teaches. And there's a real limit to that. So I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of passing laws, ordinances that ban the teaching of CRT, because that could be used to ban the teaching of anything else. Um, not a good uh, approach. Uh, I heard just yesterday, this was a, this is an interesting one. Just yesterday, there is a group trying to put cameras in every public school classroom. So, so parents apparently having gotten used to looking over the shoulder of kids on Zoom and not being happy with what's been taught now that Zoom is maybe going away and school is live again, um, people are actually advocating cameras in the schools. Now, again, if it's a public school, they're saying it's no different than cameras on cops, you know, the, the shoulder cams they have. So like, why not have cameras in the classrooms? Again, you see this approach. It's really an approach that only exists because the government is running the schools and parents are dissatisfied with this. So I would be uncomfortable with cameras in the schools, but you can understand the anger mm -hmm. And the, and the pushback. So I'll, I'll stop there and, and go back to Stephen on the more philosophic aspects. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with everything you said, right, about the, the pushback issues. And uh, I share your discomfort about the, uh, the politicized responses to it. So the fact that we have a large number of moms involved, uh, it is interesting that it's a lesser number of dads, uh, but th there are some prominent dads out there doing it as well, children and other other interested parties and so forth. Uh, and all of that I think is uh, is wonderful. And uh, that's a matter of going in the right direction uh, that uh, uh, even though it is a, a mixed economy in education, ultimately parents need to take ownership of the schools that they are, they are our children. So going in that direction and yeah, certainly exploring the homeschooling options and, uh, and, and others as well. But I did also wanted to, to, to generalize the discomfort that we feel in this particular case, because it's an example of a more general problem in a mixed economy. And what, what a mixed economy does or a mixed political system does is in almost everything it does is put two, uh, two healthy principles in competition with each other or outright conflict with each other. Uh, sometimes it's putting a, an unhealthy principle in conflict with a healthy principle, but in this case, it's a, it's a relatively healthy principle in conflict with another healthy principle. So when we think about education, uh, fundamentally, education is about training people's minds and bodies to prepare them, but if we're talking about children for, for adult life. And those of us who are good liberals in the genuine sense of liberal say, you know, education requires free minds, right? The students and the teachers and everybody involved in it needs to be able to assess the, uh, the evidence for them, themselves, try different ways of putting it together and engaging in discussion, contradiction, debate, argument, right? And so forth. And we have this idea that that's how we, that's how we learn individually and how we, how we learn socially. So education needs to be free. But then we have a mixed economy in which a significant portion of education is delivered by 
a political system. So it's government schooling, and we know fundamentally governments operate on the principle of compulsion, right? It's a it's a do it or or else. So now that's to put it at a high level of of abstraction: freedom versus uh, uh, authoritarianism, or freedom versus versus compulsion. So then, what happens is we have a particularly malignant belief system, like uh, critical race theory, coming along, and it seems to be making great inroads in the public schools and also the private schools. So we can't forget about them, but we're concentrating on the public schools right now. And the politicians can recognize that it's uh, malignant, many of them. Many of the teachers, the parents, and the students themselves can recognize that they are malignant. And then the question is, how are we going to deal with this? And this is where you have two uh, healthy principles in conflict with each other. On the one hand, we want to say politicians have a responsibility to spend their taxpayer dollars wisely. If politicians have taken on the responsibility of educating America's youth, then the principle is he who pays the piper calls the tune. And politicians have a responsibility to make sure that children are actually getting educated. They owe that to the, to the, uh, to the, to the taxpayers. And if it turns out that an anti-education indoctrination uh, belief system is infiltrating the public schools, then it seems like the politicians have a responsibility to step in and stop that problem. And that's, that is a, a healthy impulse. The problem, though, is that it goes up against another healthy impulse, which is the academic freedom impulse. And the academic freedom says that uh, teachers and students need to be free from interference from politicians telling them what they can and can't think and what books should be read and so forth. So then what we have is a, is a contradiction. If the politicians are going to be responsible, they have to legislate content. But if they're going to be politicians in a free society, then they have to stay out of education in terms of dictating content. So we have a contradiction and it's understandable that all of us are going to be torn precisely on, on that contradiction. So the general way uh, of thinking through this, this is how I do it, is then to say, well, uh, you, can't, you can't have both because it is a contradiction. So what you have to do is decide, in this case, what is the most important principle uh, uh, to, to fight for and to accept that you're not going to uh, be able to use the other principle. It is a contradiction. And you have to just say, what are your, your higher, uh, higher values in this case? Now, what I would say in this case here is that history shows that government involvement in education is always the worst option. Right? That uh, this is precisely what Professor Salzman started to do. Uh, once the principle is in there, that the government can legislate content when the content gets bad enough, then it's just going to become uh, slowly but surely other issues that are going to be subject to, to government law. Uh, content legislation. And uh, once the government's involved, it is the 800-pound gorilla that's always led to worse outcomes, and it's a lot harder to fight back. So the other side of it then is to say, we believe in educational freedom. And yes, there has been a malignant ideological set of principles infiltrating the public schools, but we are still able to combat that the way uh, liberal-minded people should combat. We can get educated about what that set of ideologies is. We can go to school boards. We can set up alternative institutions. We can push back in whatever shape, way, or form. That's the more important principle, and that's the principle that we uh, we need to be striving for. A free society needs to do 
It's, uh, it's dirty work in public, so to speak. We're always going to have these arguments. There's always going to be some dangerous ideology coming along, and we always need to learn in every generation how to identify it, how to get up to speed uh, about it, and how to argue back against it effectively. So what I would say is, uh, to the extent that the, uh, you know, the, the initiatives in Florida, Texas, and other places are going beyond uh, 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 any, uh, I, don't want, I, want, I want to actually put that the other way around, to the extent that they are banning certain ideas as ideas, right? That is a step that we do not want to take. If we want to get rid of these ideas, we need to do that the way free, intelligent, reasonable people will do it. And that is by means of educating ourselves and making better arguments. I just want to add to that. Um and supplement that the the idea even the idea of banning crt say in public schools is very interesting when you think about it because if you think of the transmission well transmission belt might not be the best metaphor so let me use something like an oak tree if if crt in the public schools are the leaves on the tree and it branches out from say the teachers colleges but we know the teachers colleges come from a more trunk like place called the universities. And those are ultimately their ideas and the universities are rooted in, you know, major philosophic figures, including those engaged in philosophy of education, like John Dewey and elsewhere. So it's literally trying to stop at the leaf level, uh, something that's really coming from the root level. Now, if you told someone like Governor DeSantis that, he might say, oh, oh, good, perfect, then I'll ban it also at all Florida universities and Florida teachers colleges. And we would probably say, no, 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 that's not the point, yeah. but here is the point. You need to know where this is coming from. And it's, it's okay to hack away at leaves and branches, but you have to know where it's coming from. Now, it, since it's coming from this deeper level where they're literally training teachers to be racist, um, we'd have to start looking toward remedies at that level. Now, I'm not well-versed in this. I don't follow it as closely to know, you know the ebb and flow of this kind of teaching at the universities. Since there's such long lead times, since I know for a fact that critical race theory started in the 80s, got very strong in the 90s, but was still in university levels and not yet in curriculum. You see how long this could take, but that equally means that even if there's good elements in the universities today fighting against it, it too will require, a there'll be a lag. But I think seeing this public pushback might give comfort to those in the teachers' colleges, the, the minority that exists today in the teachers' colleges and elsewhere, to push back and to begin to push back. I just wanted to mention two names, by the way, because it shouldn't be the obligation of the general public to read these academic writings, as Professor Hicks and I will do that for you. But there are a couple of names out there, if you're just interested in following this, really courageous people. One is Chris Rufo. Chris is, I think, at the Manhattan Institute, R-U-F-O, and another Heather McDonald. Heather, Heather is also focused somewhat on the whole police issue, but. Having, having that issue been heavily racialized as well, she's good on this idea of critical race theory, but specifically Rufo. If you start with Rufo and, and uh, Chris Rufo and Heather McDonald, they're, they're scholarly enough, but they write in a such a way that you'll understand it. They'll cite other sources, they'll cite other reports, and they're on the case all the time. And they're very trustworthy 
duo there if you want to follow this issue, especially if you want to become more activist about this. If you're going to become more activist, you need to become more informed about what actually uh, critical race theory is. So I, I just wanted to mention that issue of the universities all the way up to the schools. As an economist, I guess I think of it as something like the consumers are complaining. They don't like the product. They don't like the service. And uh, you can complain to some degree, but at some point back at the plant level, back at the factory level, you have to figure out what is wrong along the production line. And that's really what's happening. The whole production line has been, has been corrupted. One, one final thought about public schools, which I find very interesting. I, I was talking to someone the other day about whether to go to a public school uh, board meeting or not. And uh, someone said something about, well, I have two kids in school. So another person in the room said, well, I don't have any kids in school. Well, you're paying for this, whether you have kids in the school or not. So I would argue that anybody in the community should be able to go to a school board meeting and complain about what's being taught to children broadly. It isn't necessary for you to say you have a kid in the school. And I think the public schools actually leverage off of this. They know that the parents are not permanent customers. They know these parents are coming and going and that they come when the kids are there and they go when their kids aren't there anymore. But of course the teachers are there forever. They have tenure and they're there forever. So they can kind of wait them out in a way that a Putin would or that a Castro would. You know, it's like, go ahead, complain all you want, but I'm gonna be here a lot longer than you are. So that, I just wanted to reinforce that point. That is another reason to defund the public schools and get rid of them. Thank you both. I, I appreciate the thoughts on attending school board meetings, even if you don't have kids there, because it's something that I've thought about. My kids are out of school, um, but it's, yeah. I'm really liking what I'm seeing with parents going to the school board and, and challenging. I do wanna ask a really quick question before we move on to our second topic. Um, Virginia, no, I'm sorry, Victoria Delphia asked, do you think that CRT is truly widely believed or is it just that those who promote it are very loud? Because, And I wanted to throw that out because if it really is truly widely believed, especially, um, that would sound huge alarm bells to me that we really need to get into action. What do you think about that? Uh, I think it's the, the former option. It's a, a small number of people who know what they're talking about and they have a strategy. And part of that strategy is loud amplification on, uh, on social media. And uh, as Dr. Salzman was pointing out, uh, this has been incubating for now 20 or 30 years. So they've had a lot of time to get into into certain purchase of power. But outside of that, uh, I think the broad sweep of population, you know, most people have healthy attitudes with respect to uh, to race and they, they know there's something wrong with what they're hearing from the CRT. Yeah, and I would just add politically that uh, most politicians and leaders do not believe this is true either. Now, okay, so why do they invoke it? We just had the attorney general yesterday say white supremacy is the major domestic terrorism problem in the Amer in America. That is just incredible. The leading law mm -hmm. enforcement officer just lying about stuff. And the president, vice president has said similar things. It, here, it's just plain naked political power. They, they see people as voting blocks. And they're very worried that, again, here, another example of improvement, the, the vote of blacks toward Republicans has been increasing in the last 20 years. I think that makes the Democrats very nervous makes them very worried. 
And they're literally trying to use scare tactics and paranoia to retain that vote group, that vote block. And so that's just naked uh, uh, opportunism on the, top, on the part of the politicians. But uh, I agree with Professor Hicks. Uh, this is not widely believed either in, I'm, I'm not even sure in academia it's widely believed, in certain departments and fields of academia, sociology, psychology, perhaps, certainly race studies programs and things like that, but that's not the bulk even of the social sciences. Yeah. Economists I know, by the way, who focus more on data, they know it's not true. Be, so, so they look at things like uh, police statistics, uh, uh, educational achievement levels, income levels, wealth levels. Um, and they know that there's nothing to it. And if anything, America's improving uh, quite, quite amazingly on all these issues. Yeah, I appreciate that. So they, they may not, this may not be widely believed, but those who are loud are also um, pretty powerful and very strategic. And, and that's why we have to be concerned. But let's move on to our second topic. In the meantime, if you have any other questions on um, what we were just discussing, please don't forget to put them in the chat box or in the comment section of any of the social media that you're watching us on. But for our second topic, we wanna to talk about inflation. Recent reports have shown that inflation is increasing and more and more of us are seeing the increase in prices at the gas stations, at grocery stores, home improvement stores. And Richard, I'm gonna begin with you. Should we be concerned about um, all of this reporting? We should be concerned about it. I, I thought I would give just a, as we did with CRT, just a quick lesson in what the heck is this? What causes it? What to do about it? Whether to care about it? Now, let me just get very personal. This is the cost of living. Inflation basically is what is the cost of living and buying things. And the reason people should be concerned about inflation is if you have a rise in the cost of living, uh, and your budgets can only go so far, it is going to, to deleteriously affect your standard of living. So it's important in that regard, but from a business standpoint, I know from the history of inflation that when you get prices not only rising quickly, but fluctuating a lot, business planning and business forecasting and business decision-making is enormously uh, interrupted. And, and that's why inflation at very high levels, usually at what they call double-digit interest rates, are so destructive and disruptive. Now, the last time we had that in the US was the 1970s. So institutional memory is very, has not really remembered inflation because it has come down for three decades in a row. So part of this is just almost like a generational gap where I just saw a survey the other day actually of inflation expectations by age group. And if you're over 50, you worry more about inflation coming back than if you're lower than that. And if you're in college, I don't know, some of them can't even spell inflation. Inflation, what is it? And they use the word inflation because it's prices going up and being like ballooned up. But it's really a reflection of the money going down, the money's value going down. So inflation, I would define as a decline in the purchasing power of money, period. Inflation is a decline in the purchasing power of money. And economists speak of purchasing powers. What can it buy in terms of real goods and services? And that is reflected in higher prices. In other words, if each dollar is worth less, you're gonna need more dollars to buy the same things. Now they measure this by things like the consumer price index. It's a kind of like, a, it's seen as like a representative basket of stuff we buy every month. They go out and, and, and survey what those prices are. 
And it's going up something like seven or eight percent a year now. Now, for two decades, the inflation rate was less than two. So this is fairly new to get back up at these levels. And the debate going on today is whether this is just transitory or whether it's permanent, whether it's the beginning of a long-term trend. Now, once inflation expectations uh, center into people's minds, by the way, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So imagine if you thought, well, the price of dry goods, you know, per, uh, non-perishables like a toothpaste or uh, paper towels or things like that. If you know they're going to go up fast over the coming month, you might buy them and hoard them more than you would otherwise. Well, this contributes to the price galloping effect. So that kind of phenomenon has not been seen since the 70s, and that can be worrisome. Now, I just named some items, but I don't want to give the impression that inflation is caused by higher prices for any particular thing. The prices of particular things can go up and down for supply and demand reasons. Inflation is not that. Inflation isn't, let's go locate uh, the culprits, You know, whether it's lumber or toilet paper or something like that. That's not how it works. Inflation being a decline in the purchasing power of money shows up in all prices uh, to some degree. Okay, so that's what it is. What causes it? The government causes it. The Federal Reserve is the sole issuer of the dollar. I mean, it works in joint with the Treasury Department, so the Treasury, believe it or not, is part of this, but the Federal Reserve is responsible for the money supply. And the money supply consists of not just currency in your checking accounts and wallets, but demand a deposit checking accounts. And that has quintupled in one year. Now, quintupled means five times. The M1, if you wanna get into the technics, the M1 money supply is five times, it's about 20 trillion. It's five times as much as it was uh, before the pandemic breakout. Now, if you go back in history, I went back 107 years where they still have data. It only went up one and a half times. That's the largest prior increase of a, a, a 1.5 time increase during World War II. So this is, it's scary in that regard. But now on the other hand, when someone says the money supply went up a lot, therefore isn't inflation going up a lot, that is something called the quantity, quantity theory of money. It's something from Milton Friedman and the monetarists. And it's not a perfectly correct relationship. So you shouldn't worry about it in that regard. When they increase the money supply a lot, and I haven't even said why they did this, but when a government increases the money supply that much, and yet you only see prices going up to, well, now seven, eight percent, and you're wondering, well, why aren't they going up 50, 60, 100 percent? The answer is people hoard the money. Uh, so imagine, a bit, and this is economics like 101, big supply, but if it's met with a big demand, you're not going to get a collapse in the purchasing power of money. And that is what's been happening up until very recently. In other words, the government creates a lot of money, but then people are holding a lot of money in their bank balances and in businesses as well. Businesses are holding a lot of cash, which is what the demand for money meets in their checking accounts. And then if you ask the banks, the same thing, the banks are sitting on huge vaults of cash, not lending the money. And, but it's a very precarious situation because that money is out there already. The Federal Reserve has already created it. And it's almost like it's almost like pumping gasoline into a basement and just hoping that no one lights a match uh, because it's sitting there. It's a potential inflation. And uh, the Federal Reserve is making no attempts to bring that money supply back. It's just letting it 
stay out there. So, so this can be, this is a, a potentially very uh, dangerous situation. Now, why do they do this? The first actual more contemporary case of this was the financial, well, I would start with 9-11 actually. In 9-11, they increased the money supply a lot just in the wake of the uncertainties associated with 9-11. But then they did it even more so in 2008 and 9, fearing that the financial system would collapse. Um, they created a lot of money there as well. But again, not nearly as much as they have done in the past year or so. So those are just kind of, if you will, the episodic reasons why they've done this. Now, this is also closely connected to what's called public finance or the fiscal state. When the government spends a lot of money, as it has in the last year or so, there are only three ways to pay for it. You can either tax or borrow or print money. Now, they're very reluctant to tax because it's electorally damaging to go around saying, I'm going to raise your taxes. On top of that, the supply siders have shown that if you tax people to punitive levels, the economy will collapse. So this makes them resort more to borrowing. It makes them resort more to just issuing government bonds and borrowing the difference. But they only do that using the Federal Reserve. The Treasury calls up the Fed, basically, and says, give us money and we'll give you bonds. This stuff is created out of thin air, in effect. And that is also inducing a lot of money creation by the Fed. So understand that the Fed isn't just sitting there saying, you know, we'd love to create a lot of money like for no reason. They're doing it because of the pressure and calls coming from the Treasury, which really means coming from Congress, which really means coming from an institution that is spending enormous amounts of money without taxing people for it. Can That's I jump in? Say again, yes. I have ahead. a non-economist yeah. uh, question. So just take this as coming from a, from a yeah. philosopher. But uh, so to take your point about government has a certain amount of stuff they want to spend money on, they can either raise taxes, they can borrow or they can print money. So if I think about the, uh, the borrowing uh, option where they basically issue bonds, and then I think about the people who buy these bonds. As, right. you know, there, there's your low-level patriot person. I'm supporting the country. I'll buy my $100 bond. Right. I'm thinking about the more sophisticated people who will buy $100 million yeah. worth, worth of bonds. So these are rational, economically savvy people. Right. Uh, if things are as dire as they possibly are, uh, can be painted, uh, why are they buying these long-term bonds? And then this is where my amateur economist right comes out and I say, well, what they're doing is that the betting that the United States is going to pay, uh, be able to pay this back in 10 years or 15 years or so. And one of the reasons why is uh, the productivity gains that we expect in the US economy. So it's one thing to say inflation is a problem if you have a certain amount of goods available in the economy and a certain amount of money to pay for those goods you increase the money supply, but if you hold the available goods constant, then you're going to get inflation. But what if the available number of goods is going up? So we've doubled the money supply, but also in 10 years, productivity levels have doubled as well. Then you're not going to get an inflationary effect. So I don't know if the right language is then to say what we have is really just a, a pre-tax on future productivity, and it's basically already being priced in the financial market. So uh, as I said, amateur question, but uh, uh, tell me more about that area. 
Well, there was no reason to apologize for the amateurishness because that was more intelligible than most professional economists would do. So that was just fabulous. It well, is a, this is a real good conundrum. And it's, by the way, it's being pushed by people who call themselves modern monetary theorists. So if you ever heard of this phrase, modern monetary theory, I hope you haven't because you probably don't have a normal life if you've heard of it. Otherwise known as MMT. MMT are like serious dogmatic Keynesians who believe that you can create money almost without limit, without inflation. And so for the last decade or so, they say, see, we're right. Look at, look at us, look at all this money that's been created and we don't see any higher inflation. Now they're, they're biting their nails a little bit, a little nervous now because inflation is starting to go up and they're wondering whether it'll go up more. But apropos Professor Hicks's comments, they say the same thing about bonds. Now, this is a little technical, but if you issue a lot of bonds, not, not money now, bonds, if you issue a lot of bonds, as in Economics 101 would say, the bond prices would come down. Now, in bond analysis, that means interest rates have to go up. So these MMT people will say the same thing. They would say, just as we told you that you can issue money almost without limit and not get inflation, we're telling you you can issue bonds almost without limit and not get higher interest rates. And that is and that is a conundrum. You could say if you believed in market rationality, which I do, namely, there's a self-interest in people who hold money and bonds. They're not idiots. I mean, some people might, but you can't say collectively that markets are not understanding this. Yes, they basically do trust the dollar. Uh, they trust it a little less when inflation goes up. They don't want to hold it as much. They do trust the bonds. They're not demanding 20% interest rates on the bonds, you know, as you would of a borrower you think will default, they're asking for one or 2%, which seems pretty low. Um, and so that suggests that the US is not really anywhere near defaulting on the debt or anywhere near close to hyperinflating. But I would push back against the uh, productivity argument a little bit in the following respect. Mm -hmm. If this idea that too much money chasing too few goods, when you increase the money supply fivefold, it's, it's simply impossible to grow output five-fold or increase productivity five-fold. If anything, in the last decades, U.S. productivity growth has been fairly stagnant. It's been growth, but it's been low growth. So, But this is true in all past hyperinflation. You can't grow your way out of it. You, you can print money a lot faster than you can print cars, trucks, refrigerators, and food, and things like that mm -hmm. is the basic point. But I go back to my original point. The only way to infer why can there be such a cascade of supply of this money and this debt without their prices collapsing, without the value of these things, cash and bonds collapsing, is because people are holding them uh, and demanding them and really wanting them. And so far, so good. That sounds like, well, there's not capital flight. At least they're not throwing these things out and getting rid of them. But it does suggest an economy that's not all that entrepreneurial, because think about it. If you ask an investor, do you want to invest in venture capital, this great new startup in Silicon Valley, or do you want to invest in, a, in the stock market or, or even a corporate bond? And they say, no, I want to hold government bonds. Why? Because hmm. government won't default. Everyone else might default. Everyone else might go. Uh, under, but the government won't. It is, it is a risk of, call it a risk averse, very kind of fearful 
investment climate. And Japan, by the way, has had this for three decades. Japan mm -hmm. started this, we're basically mimicking Japan. Japan started this process about three decades ago. It has not really grown. Its economy has not really grown at all in three decades. It's stagnating. It's stagnating. People, if you're old enough to remember the 80s, Japan was seen as so vibrant and so ready to take over the US that they were they were buying Rockefeller Center and their Sony Pictures was you know, buying MGM. And, and that was the late 80s. And Japan basically started massive government spending and deficit spending, and they ran their public debt up to three times GDP. Mm. We've, dub we've doubled our debt relative to GDP from 60% to 125% but nothing close to what Japan did. Now, if you look at Japan, they don't have hyperinflation and they don't really have high interest rates. Everything is kind of low and steady and stagnating and the economy is just dead in the water. They're, they haven't collapsed. It's not like they're uh, starving. It's not like they're Venezuela, but um, you don't want to you know, choose between a robust, prospering American economy versus Venezuela, split the difference and get something like Japan uh, mm. we're beginning to see this and that's not something the typical American would be very happy about over the next 10, 10 years if that happened. So some conundrums in there, I don't want to go into it too long, but, um, it is a, it is a potential problem and they don't really have a fix for it. There isn't any attempt on the fed that I can see right now to rein in uh, the government spending it. And when you see the budget projections, there isn't any, any longer, any attempt even to hint at a narrowing of budget deficits or a reduction in spending. Even after this uh, pandemic is done, they're still coming in with really huge uh, spending plans. So this is gonna be an issue for quite a while. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. That was actually really helpful. Um, Stephen, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that or? Uh, well, let me ask you first. I know we have uh, have some questions. Uh, how much time should we budget for for questions? So I don't well, want we can to go get, get... to the questions now, or if you had something that you wanted to add to wrap that just, uh, topic up. about getting into motor mouth <laughs> on this topic because there's a lot more to be said. So, no, I, I appreciate Richard's uh, economic insights into into what the issues is, but I always come back to them thinking, and Richard was starting to talk this way as well that how the economists think about these issues doesn't seem to be that important, that the, the important cultural thing is how politicians think about money and inflation and so forth. So the Federal Reserve has some measure of autonomy, but basically it's a political animal. And the same thing with the, the, the Treasury Department and so on. And uh, I don't want to trot out too many stereotypes, but the average politician, when they are thinking about money, yeah. The majority of them think of it as a kind of magic, right? That happens. They do not yeah. have yeah. an entrepreneur's understanding of money, a business person's understanding of money, or even an economist's understanding of money. They just have, they have the magic credit card, and right. uh, 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 you know they they have their have their agenda. So that strikes me as a background political issue. If we have people with that kind of a mindset with respect to money, driving policy then uh, of course that's going to set us up for problems and there's always going to be a large number of economists who want to seat at the political table yes. who will tell the, uh, the politicians what they want to hear yes. uh, in order to uh, to do so so they get feted around uh we also have a long tradition of uh, uh and it's, i think this trend is increasing of seeing 
that someone like the president, not as the head of government, but as the, the head of the, con the country, right? So yeah. you see this, right. this, this language keeping, uh, he's not the, you know, the, the head of the executive branch, right? He's, the, he's right. the head of the whole government and the whole government is in charge of the whole co country. So there's, right. you start seeing language like, well, who's running the economy, right? And right. So, well, and, and, right. and to the obvious sense that, well, the president is running the economy. Right. And that mindset is very alien from, you know, servant of the people and we, uh, people running businesses and starting businesses, we are the ones who are collectively running running the economy. So there's a mindset shift thing that goes on there as well. I think also uh, uh, this issue of money being an abstraction. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's an abstract representation of wealth, and we're using it as a as a medium of exchange. To the extent that we have cognitive impoverishment, you know, people not able to think in terms of abstractions and what money really means. Right. Uh, even among the voting citizens and certainly among the politicians, that's a that's a problem because if you can't tie those abstractions to reality, right. then all of the moral issues about you know the the moral value of money that money is supposed to be kind of a reward for productivity in some sense that that connection is going to be lost. It just becomes this monopoly money that right thing floating around and so on. Another background issue, uh, and I'll have to I'll just stop with this one, is uh, this idea of monopoly, how, how uh, uh, schizophrenic uh, we are culturally about monopoly. So you know, if any business gets too large, then uh, you know, it's got 60% market share, it's a monopoly, automatically it's bad, we need to break yeah. it up, right, and yeah. so forth. Yeah. But in this particular case, you know, the government has a 100% yeah. monopoly on the yeah. money supply. And everybody's just fine with that. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, there could be competing currencies and so on, maybe with Bitcoin and the others, that uh, that jam is going to be broken up a little bit. But it does strike me that we have some background, they're not all moral right. issues, but other philosophical and cognitive issues about money that are also uh, causing our problems. Yeah, it, it, that's a real, those are really good points. And, and another uh, aspect of this, which might interest people, even when the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, We've only had a central bank for 110 years. Somehow the United States grew and had an industrial revolution on the gold standard mm. and free banking. Uh, people forget that's way far back. So people don't know that. But even when it was given this monopoly in 1913, it had those golden handcuffs. It had to issue dollars convertible into gold. And so there was some kind of rule. There was some kind of objective anchor. Philo philosophically, we know that nominalism is the idea that concepts aren't tied to reality, that they are whatever name we give them, they are what any arbitrary thing we say they are. That is what we have today. We have monetary nominalism. Yep. We have money is whatever we say it is, whatever the Federal Reserve says it is, however much it prints will determine how much it's valued. We've been off the gold standard now literally for 50 years, it's 50 years next month. August 1971, Nixon took us off the gold standard. So now up until now, the only reason the Federal Reserve has not lost its reputation is it's been crafted as something that's independent of the treasury. So if you hear the phrase central bank independence, what does it mean? It means, well, they do issue the money, but at least they're issuing it according to some rule, ideally say the gold standard or some other rule, and they don't facilitate and enable deficit spending. They basically don't return the phone calls of the treasury when it says we need money. Well, that is totally out the window. The last 10 or 15 years in the US, the Federal Reserve has completely surrendered its independence. So it's already a monopoly institution, but somehow you can make monopolists uh, behave. Now it's a completely unbehaving, well, 
misbehaving monopoly, very dangerous, no rules. The rule, they're ruling without rules, very dangerous. Yep, nicely said. Well, and I also want to point out next week for the Atlas Society as our um, guest will actually be Michael Saylor, who's the MicroStrategy CEO, and he's a Bitcoin standard advocate. So if you're interested in this discussion on um, the economy and on money and perhaps other money supplies, uh, you'll definitely want to tune in to that. Um, I do have a question from somebody that goes back to um, CRT, and this is from Mark Paley on Facebook, and he's asking why people are so upset to actually have teachers teach the truth about American history. And I, I hear this a lot that um, people who are against critical race theory just want to quote whitewash American history and not teach about slavery and any of that. And I was just wondering if you could address that because I do hear that a lot. Richard, I'll start with you. Yeah, this is a really important distinction. Uh, America has had systemic racism. It has had slavery. It has had the Jim Crow laws. It has had mandatory segregation in the army and elsewhere. So that must be taught, absolutely must be taught. But, and also it should be taught you know, not all the founders were racist slavers. Some of them weren't. The Federalists tended not to be. Uh, obviously, those in the North tended not to be. So the idea of critical race theory is not, hey, we're just reminding you that uh, you used to be racist and uh, let's study now how we've become less racist. That's not what they're doing. Their view is, and this is how Obama put it, it's in our DNA. It's our original sin. So their view literally is, if you can find it anywhere in the history of the country, it's ineradicable. It cannot be eliminated. You cannot go the MLK route of saying civil rights and let's judge people on the content of their character, not on the color of their skin. The CRT people say that's impossible. The CRT people literally say you cannot have that standard. They're rejecting the MLK standard of 1965. So. Uh, that is a good distinction to make and critics of CRT should make sure that they're not saying listen literally whitewash no pun intended that the idea here is not to say that America never had any racial uh, structural racial past it's very important actually to explain who was for what and why because it isn't a can't paint with a broad brush using another metaphor there are some heroes out there who were abolitionists uh, the Hamiltonians who never wanted it in the Constitution to begin with, uh, the three-fifths clause, which is not saying Blacks were worth three-fifths, but the Federalists saying you can't simultaneously enslave people and give them a vote. So there were, there were all these wonderful fights, fortunately won by the abolitionists and those who won the Civil War, as Ayn Rand used to say very eloquently, it was the capitalist North that beat the feudalist South and got rid of slavery. And so for Ibram X. Kendi to run around saying capitalism is racism, racism is capitalism, is absolutely obscene. It's, it's disgusting. And of course, he's the big hero of CRT these days. Yeah. So That's to jump in on uh, seconding everything that uh, uh, Richard is saying, it's absolutely right. So yeah, part of the problem is that we do have weak history education. And so the solution is going to be more history education. But if we do more history education, it's not going to be the history that the CRT people are, are pushing. What you're getting there is a very slanted, 
thin slice, uh, agenda-driven, cherry-picking understanding of what's going on in history. So all of the anecdotes and issues and problems that uh, the U.S. has had and other countries have had with respect to race and slavery, all of those should be absolutely on the on the on the curriculum. But what does happen when you start looking at history uh, more carefully is you realize that uh, the history of all of the Enlightenment nations with respect to slavery and race is a great moral achievement and that we should, yeah, yeah. Uh, to the extent that we are, are, are inheritors of that tradition, feel proud of what we what we have done. I mean, it's not accidental that the very first voices ever in human history saying, hey, there's something wrong with yeah. slavery. Right. Right. Well, well slavery has been in basically every culture, every time <laughs> for, for, for millennials. Most people yeah. were yeah. Europeans educated yeah. in a humanistic tradition. Yeah. And then that starts to, to grow. The very first anti-slavery societies ever in human history right. are in the 1700s. Yeah. And they are in England, Britain, more broadly, France and the United States. Right. Uh, uh, so the fact that at that same time, there still is some some slavery and and some racist right and so forth. That's to miss the bigger point that for the first time in history, we've got people doing something about this moral stain on on human history. So and then uh, the ball gets rolling on through the late 1700s and on into the into the 1800s. It's a story of historical moral achievement. And yeah, that, that's <laughs> that's going to be the uh, the ultimate answer to CRT. Thank you. I appreciate um, you addressing that because it is something that I hear quite often and I think needs to be clarified. And once again, I cannot believe we're almost at the top of the hour. Mm. Uh, there were a couple of questions um, asking for, for further information um, on, let's see, it was Sean Ramook, which I'm probably mispronouncing that and I apologize on, um, Zoom was asking for more information on how to be articulate in regard, regards to discussing critical race theory. I think Anyone? I did respond to uh, Sean with my recommendations. If they're not public, let me know and I can make them make them public. That's ex exactly what I was going to ask you to do, that you responded to him privately. And he had even suggested maybe you could send out a tweet with some of that, and that would be fantastic. And oh, then he yeah. also asked Richard if you had any basic economic books um, that you think would be a good starting place to really understand economics and the economy uh, that maybe you could share with us? I can. Uh, you always have to start with Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. That's a good one. But uh, let me plug my own economic writings right now because I cite many of those kind of things. So including recent essays on inflation and the threat. And just go to Richard Salzman at AIER dot org so there i write at least once every three weeks or so on some economic issues from a philosophic standpoint and the recent one is on inflation is on exactly this issue so richard's just uh, richard salzman at aier dot org that's the american institute for economic research perfect thank you so much and up here we're at the end of the hour apparently my dog captain decided to join me halfway through right. Right. <laughs> do, you have any, do you have any do you have any questions no no questions no, he's asleep uh, oh, okay. right. so not to be taken personally at all that's pretty <laughs> much pretty much all he does um but i did want to thank both you steve richard and both you Stephen, that for joining us today and for discussing these 
very, very important topics. Again, I'm Vicki Odino, and if you enjoyed this video or you enjoy any of our other materials, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And as I mentioned earlier, next week our guest is Michael Saylor, which is going to be a great follow-up to, I think, today's discussion on inflation. And I will see you next week. Thank you very much. Thank Have you all.